We're in a series looking at how the Christ is patterned in subtle ways in key figures or events in the Old Testament in anticipation of the New Testament of Jesus who is the Christ. And our belief as Christians is that all of Scripture is ultimately about Jesus, and so all of the Old Testament finds its meaning and its fulfillment in Him. Now, in past weeks, we have looked at Adam and Joseph and Moses, and this week we come to someone who I think should be obvious, Joshua, but maybe he isn't quite that obvious to us. Now, the reason he's an obvious candidate is because he has the same name as Jesus, that is, Yeshua. Now, Jesus is the Latin version of the Greek Jesus, it sounds like the Spanish Jesus, it's very similar. In fact, the Latin version is just a transliteration where it's just taken the same letters, basically, and, and pronounced them slightly differently. And Jesus, uh, which itself, that's a version of the Hebrew name Yeshua, or as we would say in modern English, Joshua. In other words, Joshua, for whom the sixth book of the Bible is named, and whose name means God saves, anticipates the greater Joshua of the New Testament, or as we call him, Jesus. Now, at the outset, I need to acknowledge a, uh, a debt of gratitude to a scholar who doesn't know me, but I know many of his works. His name is Alistair Robertson, and an article he wrote about a year ago on Joshua that I found just utterly fascinating. So whatever is good or insightful in this sermon, it probably came from his heavy lifting. Well, that said, we begin by reading Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, which is the commissioning of Joshua as a leader of Israel after Moses. It really sets the pattern for his work. But keep your finger also in Joshua 2 and perhaps Joshua 6 and 7, as we'll be talking through those chapters as well. Right, Joshua chapter 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, towards the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go again in prayer to him. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this word through your servant Joshua and how just even in this brief reading, we can see Jesus all over it, how he 
lived according to your word, how he meditated on it day and night, how he did not diverge from it, how he was strong and courageous, and how his soul treaded on the very head of the serpent and conquered him. We thank you for the grace of this word. We pray it would work in our hearts and our minds in this time that we would have feet to follow you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, while Joshua is clearly an important figure in the Bible, it's a little surprising that the Messiah wouldn't be named after what we would probably take to be a more significant figure. So why not name him Moses, for example, who led Israel out of Egypt and gave Israel the law. In fact, what we just read was uh, God telling Joshua, the book of the law that I gave, that's essentially Exodus 21 and following, that I gave through Moses, you keep that, that word. Why not uh, Isaac, who was offered as an atoning sacrifice by his father Abraham? After all, that's what Jesus would do for his people. Why not David, the king who united Israel into one kingdom and defeated all her enemies? Or Solomon, you know, David's son, who was filled with God's wisdom and built the house of the Lord? Or Joseph, or Elijah, or Elisha, or Daniel? All incredibly important figures that arguably we're probably more familiar with than Joshua himself. Now, obviously, all, all these, these men prefigured Jesus in important ways. In fact, it was somewhat difficult to choose which ones to use for this, this short series. And even as the angel instructs Joseph, the father of Jesus, to call him Emmanuel in conformity with Isaiah 7.14, it's notable that Jesus is given the name of Joshua tying him directly to the Joshua of the Old Testament, who we just read his, his commissioning. Now, we first read of Joshua, and this is mentioned in our text too, as an assistant to Moses, serving at his right hand and learning under him, just as Moses had learned under Jethro, his father-in-law. In number 13, we learn that the Joshua of the tribe of Ephraim, and Caleb of the tribe of Judah, not long after the Exodus, were set apart alongside ten other men to spy out the Promised Land. You'll remember the spies were gone for 40 days, basically spying and testing and evaluating the land. And of the twelve spies, only Joshua and Caleb believed that God would give them the land. It's poignant that they are from the tribes of Ephraim, and Judah, respectively, because as we, we talked about, if you remember in the sermon on Joseph from a couple of weeks ago, the promise made through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob went through Joseph, went through Joseph to Joseph's second-born son, Ephraim. It's why the northern kingdom of Israel, as you will find them often in some of the prophetic literature, is often referred to as Ephraim, even as the coming Messiah was promised to be coming from the tribe of Judah. So here, Spies from Ephraim and Judah, or we should say representatives of Ephraim and Judah, believed that God would take the land when the rest of the tribes had no faith. What's interesting is that the name Joshua was given to him by Moses. His birth name was Hosea, like the minor prophet Hosea, who famously was instructed by God to marry a, well, a wife of whoredom, as the text says, and have children with her. As was the case with many of the prophets, Hosea's life was a living picture for God's people. With Hosea's marriage to Gomer being an image of God's faithfulness to his perpetually unfaithful bride, Israel. Now, Moses and Joshua 
Really, they serve as bookends to the one saving action of God, and you can see that in multiple parallel events in both men's lives. So, for example, Moses was used to God to used by God to lead Israel out of slavery into Egypt, even as Joshua was, was used by God to lead Israel out of the wilderness into the promised land. And that's really one long action. Moses was commissioned by God at the burning bush, and God spoke to him through the angel of the Lord out of the midst of the fire and told him that he had come down uh, from his throne room to deliver his people, and he would send Moses to bring his people back to that very mountain uh, to worship God. On the night before the battle of Jericho, Joshua encountered the commander of the Lord's army, who told him, now I have come. That is, now the battle can commence because I will fight for you. And both events happened on holy ground. And in both events, the angel of the Lord and the commander of the Lord's army spoke with God's voice in the first person with his authority. And they were told, if you're on holy ground, that means you're in the throne room of God and God's present right there. And in my view, both the angel and the commander of the Lord's army are the same guy, that they are both the pre-incarnate Son of God come to lead his people through his chosen servants. So for good reason, both the book of Jude, and this is what, Jude 1, 5, and 1 Corinthians 10, see Jesus as the one who both liberated Israel from Egypt and also conquered the promised land. So in both Moses and Joshua, we have the pattern for what Jesus alone would do for the world, even as it was Jesus who worked through and led Moses and Joshua in the single act of atonement in taking back the land. Hebrews 3 and 4 makes a similar point when it says Moses was the servant of the house, but Jesus is the owner of the house, that is, the house of God, the temple, so to speak. Likewise, Joshua brought Israel into the land, but did not bring Israel into God's rest. Jesus alone, as Hebrews 9.15 puts it, has given his people their eternal inheritance, which include, includes both the atonement for sin and the inheritance of life, resurrected life, on a sanctified and glorified earth. And remember what Jesus himself promises in the Sermon on the Mount. The meek shall inherit the earth. As we've already mentioned, Moses led Israel in the wilderness and Joshua uh, led Israel in the land. And as an aside, it's interesting that no leader was immediately established after Joshua. From Moses to Joshua, it's immediate. But after Joshua, there is no leader immediately established. And it's implied in the book of Judges that God was Israel's king, even as Israel rejected him. Even so, in the absence of a Moses or a Joshua-type leader, we see God raise up various spirit-filled judges to lead the people as they move towards the coming king of God's own choosing, David. So just as the book of Judges is the time between Joshua and David, so in a certain sense we live between Jesus' first and his second coming. When it seems, at least to the world, and sometimes to us as Christians, that there is no king ruling over the world. But we know better, just as the people in the book of Judges should have known better. The pattern with Moses in the wilderness and Joshua in the land is repeated with Elijah, a voice crying out in the wilderness, and Elisha, who ministered in cities. 
This pattern is ultimately fulfilled with, you could probably guess, John the Baptist, again, a voice crying out in the wilderness, and Jesus, who was baptized by John in the Jordan River, just as Moses named and commissioned Joshua, and Elijah gave his mantle of prophetic leadership uh, to Elisha, complete with a double portion of the Spirit. And in turn, Jesus, having crossed through the Jordan, ministered throughout the land of Israel. Moses led Israel through the destruction of Egypt with the plagues culminating with the Passover and then the crossing of the Red Sea, even as God reversed the pattern with Joshua, first with the crossing of the Jordan River, followed by the celebration of Passover, and presumably it had been 40 years since the first celebration of Passover in Egypt, and then the destruction of Jericho. So it's a pattern of A, B, C, C, B, A, as it goes from out of Egypt into the wilderness, out of the wilderness into the land, complete with two water crossings as you go. Again, tying Moses and Joshua together as one action. Jericho itself is a central foundational event of the Old Testament. And of course, through Joshua, the destruction of that city begins the conquest of the Promised Land. And the book of Joshua stands, I think, behind the book of Revelation, with the destruction of Jericho in particular being repeated in Revelation 11 and 12. So whereas at Jericho, Israel marched around the city six days with seven priests, blowing seven trumpets, and on the seventh day they marched seven times before the city fell, announcing to the region, and really in many ways to the world, that the true God was taking back the land. Well, so too, before the events of Revelation 12 start up, after the two witnesses of John and Jesus have been killed and taken up to God, a seventh trumpet is sounded, announcing that, as it says, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall rule forever and ever. And just as the priests and the ark marched around Jericho, so too John sees God's temple in heaven opened up, and he sees the ark of the covenant in the temple, the heavenly throne room, and therein God's judgment began, in particular on Satan. So just as we see Joshua rooting out the wicked and evil throughout Canaan, so too Jesus cast out demons everywhere he went, ultimately conquering Satan on the cross. But within the destruction of Jericho, we find the story of Rahab and Achan. And when the Bible takes the time in the midst of a narrative like that to focus on two seemingly unrelated people within the same event, it's worth taking the time to investigate them and why they are there. Well, that takes us to Joshua 2. In Joshua 2, Joshua sends out two spies into the land with an eye towards Jericho in particular. And so whereas 40 years earlier, Moses sent 12 spies, here Joshua sends two. And I think it's safe to assume they were like Caleb and Joshua from a generation earlier, most likely from the tribes of Ephraim and Judah. They enter into Jericho and they find hospitality in the house of a known prostitute, Rahab. And what follows in that story echoes both Sodom and Gomorrah from Genesis 19 as well as the birth narrative 
of Exodus 1. So whereas in Genesis 19, the men of Sodom looked to harm instead of show hospitality, to put it mildly, to the two angels who appeared as men coming to evaluate and judge the city sent by God, of course, so too did the king of Jericho look to harm the two men sent by Joshua to evaluate that city. Lot, Abraham's nephew, who did know the true God, took in the two angels, showing them hospitality, as does Rahab, the Canaanite. Lot tried to put off the mob by incredibly sinful means, offering them his daughters, leading to the angels defending his house. Well, so too Rahab. Like the midwives who deceived Pharaoh in Exodus 1, saving the Hebrew boys, well, here she deceived the king of Jericho and hid the two spies in her home. Now, as an aside, the theme of a, a new Eve deceiving the serpent. Remember, Eve was deceived by the serpent, but a new Eve deceiving the serpent, turning the tables or using the serpent's own tactics against him, as it were, is a repeated theme throughout Scripture, not just in this passage. You see it happen many times. In fact, you can see something similar with the Magi at Jesus' birth who deceived Herod, and he was enraged by it. Well, unlike Lot, who resisted the angel's offer of salvation in the hills and lingered in Sodom, and apparently he was fond of that wicked city, as was his wife, Rahab does not hesitate to make a confession of faith, going so far as to say, and this is a quote, the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. So he's not just a tribal God, he's the God over all things. In turn, she asked the two spies to show her and her household kindness and spare them in the coming destruction. This again is a statement of faith. Unlike the 10 Israelite spies of the previous generation, or Lot, not only does Rahab believe Israel's God will destroy Jericho and take the land, she wants to join with Israel's God. This is just like what we see Ruth do with Naomi in the book of Ruth. She wants to join with Israel's God. So the two men, like the two angels, agree to spare Rahab and her household, and in turn, Joshua honored the deal. And as God said to Abraham, those who bless Abraham and his people, they too will be blessed. And you see that pattern happen over and over again among the Gentiles. And this is a perfect example of it. The two spies then give a sign uh, to set Rahab and her household apart in the coming destruction. A scarlet cord should be tied to the window of her home with the warning that her whole family should remain in her house till the destruction was over. And in response, she says, according to your words, so be it. So this is a Passover type event where God's people were marked out with a symbol of blood and were given shelter, very much like Noah and his ark, from God's coming judgment. Only this time, instead of the destroyer in Egypt, the judgment comes via Israel as led by the commander of the Lord's army through Joshua. After Rahab's deception of the king of Jericho, the spies escape into the hills, and again, something that Lot resisted, and remain there three days, eventually making their way back to safety. And so Joshua 2 
ends with the two spies telling Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us, and that is the word from Rahab. That is the report they received from her. And it's not unlike Jesus who saw that the fields were ripe for harvest, ripe for taking even as demons cowered in fear of him. Well, with Joshua 6, we read that God commanded Joshua to take the men of war and march around the city once a day for six days. So the procession was led by seven priests who each carried a trumpet for a total of seven trumpets who went in front of the Ark of the Covenant. So you should see it. Priests, Ark, men of war marching around the the city uh, once a day, six days, seven times on the seventh day. And the Ark itself was a symbol of God's throne. So in fact, the ark is God's, it's considered God's footstool with his head in heaven. In other words, God's heavenly throne and his earthly throne, they come together at the place of the ark. So on earth as it is in heaven, that's what is in view. And on the seventh day, presumably that's a Sabbath. Presumably that's a Sabbath. They were to march around the city seven times with the seven priests and the seven trumpets going before the ark. Then... With a long final blast and the shout of the people, the wall would fall. God was bringing Israel into the promised rest. That's what's in view there. God is bringing his people into a promised rest. He's working. They are not. And like they saw in Egypt, God would fight all of Israel's battles for her. Israel then was to devote the city to total destruction. This is a burnt offering. It is an act of worship. The only thing spared in all of it, the only thing spared were gold, silver, bronze, and iron that were to be put into the treasury of the Lord. So for those of you who have been attending our Sunday night series on on Daniel, those four medals should be ringing in your ears right now. And that's all I will say about that. Even as we see in that same passage, Rahab and her house were passed over. They were passed over by Joshua, and in turn, they joined with Israel. Now, what follows next in Joshua 7 is the story of Achan, who disobeyed God's commandment. He did not do according to all that God had said to do, and he kept for himself some of the things that were to be devoted to God at Jericho, in particular, a beautiful cloak from Shinar, that is, from Babylon, so he's taking from the wealth of Babylon, as well as a pretty good amount of silver and gold, and then he buries it within the camp. Now, the result of Achan's sin was that Israel was soon defeated by a much smaller city of Ai, and instead of the people of the land fearing God and his people, like Rahab had reported to the spies, Israel's heart, it says, Israel's heart melted and became as water. And in response to the defeat, Joshua very much like you see in the, the book of Jonah with uh, the taking on sackcloth, ripping his clothes, and, and covering himself in dust, in dust, interceded for Israel. Achan's sin, you see, had polluted the entire people. Think about that. One man had polluted the entire people. And in turn, God made it known that because of Achan, Israel had broken the covenant. That is, they had broken their wedding vows. Chapter 7 tells us twice that Achan was a descendant of Zerah of the tribe of Judah. 
That ties Achan all the way back to Genesis 38, when Judah had children through his Canaanite daughter-in-law, Tamar, who had deceived Judah by presenting herself as a prostitute in order to force him to provide for her as he was obligated to do, but had refused to do. As a result, Tamar had twins by Judah, Perez and Zerah. Genesis 38 tells us that at their birth, Perez's hand came out first and the midwife tied a scarlet thread around it to indicate that he was the firstborn, but he drew back his hand and we are told that he was breached. Instead, Zerah was born first and Perez was then afterward born with the scarlet thread still around his wrist. Now, if you follow the genealogies of 1 Chronicles 2, which I know are a a hot passage for most Christians. If you follow it from Perez's uh, birth in Genesis 38 to the wilderness wandering after the Exodus, so roughly 400 years, you come to Nashon, who was considered the prince of the tribe of Judah. And as Numbers 1 indicates, he was the leader of Judah. He's the only one among the tribes that's considered a prince. And I think it's fairly because the blessing on Judah was that the scepter of dominion would come. The Messiah would come through the tribe of Judah. So he is considered royalty in some sense. And we know from those same genealogies in 1 Chronicles 2 and elsewhere that Nashon's son was Salmon, not Salmon, but Salmon, who in turn fathered Boaz. Now maybe you don't recognize Perez and Nashon and Salmon, but I bet you know the name Boaz, who in turn married Ruth, the Moabite, and fathered Obed, who in turn fathered Jesse, who in turn fathered David. Not once in any of those genealogies that I could find in the Old Testament is Rahab mentioned in connection with these births that we see here. It's not until Matthew's genealogy of Jesus that we find Rahab pointed out. And what's fascinating about Matthew's genealogy is that he breaks with the typical tracing of the lineage by fathers. And he inserts several mothers. Tamar, the Canaanite prostitute. Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute. Ruth, the Moabite, enemies of God. Bathsheba, he actually says the wife of Uriah, which highlights again another Gentile union, the Hittites, a people who were to be conquered. And then finally, Mary. The lineage leading to the Messiah certainly includes Gentiles, in particular natural enemies of God's people like Canaanites and Moabites who are engrafted into the people of God. But also, as you see them, they're women who were elevated from low places, to put it mildly, to sit in the place of royalty. Royalty. For good reason, Mary, in response to the angel's announcement that she would bear the Messiah, she riffs off of Anna's, Hannah's song from 1 Samuel 2 that we use for our profession of faith. Here's what she says. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. 
He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. That's a song that could have just as easily be sung by Rahab, because it describes Jericho as much as it describes Mary's experience. Her experience at Jericho is very much akin, someone who was taken from a humble and a low estate and raised to the very highest things, and those who were proud and arrogant were leveled. So the movement from Genesis 38 to this moment in Jericho, believe it or not, flows from Perez of the Scarlet Thread and Zerah, his twin. And by way of Alistair Roberts, I'm convinced that it was most likely Salmon, the son of Nashan, the prince of Judah, that was one of the two spies sent by Joshua who was taken in by the Gentile prostitute Rahab and gave her the sign of the scarlet cord that also marked out his ancestor. A new Passover in Jericho that pointed all the way back to his ancestor Perez, who in turn would later marry Rahab, elevating her to the status of royalty, much like Boaz did with Ruth within the tribe of Judah. Likewise, Achan, the descendant of Zerah, also of the tribe of Judah, who was fully born first, but not marked out by the scarlet thread, unlike Salmon, He disregarded God, stole from what was to be set apart for God, and was stoned to death as a rebellious son. His corpse burned with a memorial of God's burning anger put in place. In short, Achan of the tribe of Judah, because he took God lightly and rebelled against him, was treated exactly the same as Jericho, let alone Sodom. So you might be wondering, how does this relate to Jesus? Well, on the one hand, Jesus, like Joshua, and this is really at the heart of the book of Revelation, is taking back the world, and he has been since his first advent. We've already mentioned how he did this in his ministry by casting out demons, but as Revelation says, the kingdom of the world has become. This is past tense. It has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And as far as Revelation is concerned, the announcement of the kingdom was made with Jesus' first coming, and he has been taking back the world ever since. So what began in the backwater town of Bethlehem, the birthplace of David, and in, in turn the birthplace of the Messiah, will not end until Jesus has taken back the whole world, something he is actively doing even now. So what Joshua initially and partially did in conquering the promised land, failing to bring the people into God's rest, Jesus, the greater Joshua, is doing for all of creation because the whole world is his. And if you follow the movement of Revelation 12 through 21, it moves from the woman attacked by the great red dragon to a woman kept in the wilderness for a certain amount of time to, as it says, this is Revelation's text, Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations, to the bride of the Lamb who has been ready for him. I think all of those descriptions are of the same woman, 
I think it's the same woman. It's why Israel is often spoken about as God's unfaithful bride. So like with the prophet Hosea, God married a prostitute and was faithful to her even as she pursued other lovers. Or like Ezekiel 16, where God raised Israel up from birth and was tender and kind and gentle with her, supplied her with great riches and splendor, only to have her run after other lovers in the most obscene ways. Ezekiel 16 and Revelation 12 through 21 are a picture of God's history with his people and how he remains faithful and will redeem them through his son. Now, to be sure, like with Achan, God will often give people exactly what they want and will give them over to their sin. You know, at root, Achan rejected the word of God through Joshua, through Joshua and had become a rebellious son, just like the Jewish leadership, who should have known better, rejected Jesus and sought to keep the temple for themselves. But it's with Rahab that we saw how God desires to treat his people. He loves to take those who should have no part with him into his family. Not just that, he provides shelter from his judgment and elevates people like prostitutes to positions of royalty. And for good reason then, when Jesus encounters the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, like the two angels in Sodom, he first invites her to show him hospitality, which, like Rahab, she does. Then he offers her living water in himself. Then he reveals that he knows her entire history. Five previous husbands, and she was now living with a sixth that is not her husband, indicating not so much an unfortunate loss of five husbands, but rather a total life of immorality. And then again, he invites her to find a life in him. Like Rahab, she not only believes him, she becomes an evangelist for him. And the city, unlike Sodom and Jericho, gladly hosts Jesus for two more days and confesses faith in him as well. It's why in Revelation, from Babylon, the city of prostitutes and abominations, that is, Jerusalem, comes the bride of Christ, a people who, like we see in Joshua, are a mixture of Jew and Gentile, the tribe of Judah and the city of Jericho, together made clean and atoned for by the greater Joshua, Jesus the Christ, who does not fail ever to offer living water. So even as Jesus is the one who drives out the demons and adversaries of God, which he surely does, taking back the whole world in the process, he is also the one who makes prostitutes into his bride. And as we are about to celebrate, he invites them to eat at his royal table. Well, let us pray as we come to the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, You have woven such an incredible, an incredible story of your faithfulness and your kindness and your graciousness. How you reach out to the very lowest of the low and love to redeem. That is, you love to buy them back out of slavery, sin, and death. You love to make them your own. You love to elevate the humble to high estate, even as you will take the proud and the arrogant and you will level them, just as you did Jericho just as you did to Achan. We pray that we would be a people who are humble, who look 
in faith like Rahab to you for all things, knowing that our deliverance doesn't come through our own strength. It doesn't come through our own creativity. It comes from you alone who can provide shelter, a Passover, and certain judgment. We thank you for this grace and this kindness. We pray all of it in Jesus, our Savior's name.